On September 19, 1961, on a clear night brightly lit by a gibbous moon near two-thirds full, a couple, on their way back home from a road trip to Niagara Falls and Montreal, pulled into a restaurant they felt would be their last chance to rest before completing what remained of their long drive. Betty and Barney Hill hunkered down at the counter, him diving into his hamburger and her enjoying a piece of chocolate layer cake, followed by a cigarette and a cup of coffee, of course. When the clock read 10.05, it was time to get back to it. They still had another 170 miles to go until they reached their hometown of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Their estimated arrival, as Barney would mention to his wife getting into the car, looked to be about 2.30 or 3 a.m. Back on the road, they wound effortlessly through the Connecticut River Valley with the couple's little dog, Delcy, asleep at Betty's feet. The luminous moon, big and bright overhead, the clearest of night skies, and the road quite deserted. At Lancaster, the wide and easy valley road would soon turn into mountains as they continued their way down Route 3. Just south of Lancaster, Betty, having been enjoying the beautiful nighttime setting, the moon in all its glory and a particularly bright star just below and to the left of it, was suddenly startled to notice yet another star, even bigger and brighter than the first, now situated just above it. Though uncertain of the exact time she took notice, she was completely certain it had not been there before, and oddly enough, it seemed to be getting brighter. She nudged Barney after watching for a moment in silence. Ever the skeptical, logical type, Barney's first impression was that it might be a satellite that had gone off its course. It wasn't anything particularly exceptional in his mind. Later, he would note when he first laid eyes on it, it was quite a distance out and described it resembling a star in motion. They continued their winding path, catching glimpses every so often of this satellite, as it seemed to follow along, parallel to their direction. They would make many rest stops as they continued on their way, noting that despite it possibly being an illusion that the object was in motion because they were in motion, this notion was dashed whenever they stood along the side of the road to walk Delcy, curiously watching the object as it progressed against the panoramic backdrop. Barney became more and more puzzled, as he could clearly see it change its course erratically. Around 11 o'clock, Cannon Mountain loomed to their right. Barney slowed the car near a picnic turnout with an amazing view. Again, they watched the strange light, noting its erratic flight pattern, swinging suddenly north, then west, then began heading, seemingly right toward them. It's got to be a plane, Barney would say as the light grew bigger. Closer. Or a helicopter, he thought. But there was no clipping of propellers. No whir of a jet. No sound at all could be heard coming from the object. Watching it through binoculars, it was at this stop that Barney suddenly began to feel as if they were being observed by the thing. And as he looked, it did seem to be getting closer. They continued on their way. As they passed around the base of the mountain, there was a quick reprieve as the object disappeared behind the behemoth. But once on the other side of it, the thing was even closer, and low enough now to the ground to flit and glint behind the dense trees that ran parallel to the road as the now very big light seemed to continue running parallel to their moving car. With the naked eye, it appeared to Betty as a streak of light. But when she put the binoculars to her eyes, peering at it from the passenger window, she could clearly see a double row of blue-white illuminated windows. And this thing was enormous. She watched as a red light came out on its left side, 
followed by a red light on its right. It was now no more than 200 feet in the air, much closer. Upon Betty's insistence that her husband stop and take a look at this thing, he finally did, taking the binoculars from her. With the car still running, he got out and pointed the glasses in its direction, and he could clearly see the object had swung toward them and now hovered silently no more than a city block away right at treetop level. His eyes might have been deceiving him, because what he saw looked like a large, glowing pancake. So he stepped around the car and looked again. Do you see it? Do you see it? Betty called from the car. It's just a plane or something, he snapped at her, stepping even closer to look yet again. And as he did, the gigantic, pancakey object swung in a silent arc across the road and stopped not more than a hundred feet from him. Barney stared up at the now clearly obvious rows of windows. He couldn't explain what compelled him to do it, but he then crossed the road, stepped into the adjacent field, and began walking directly toward it, as the enormous disc dipped at an angle toward him. Barney continued his forward motion across the field as the craft dropped closer to the ground. He stopped 50 feet from it and put the binoculars to his eyes one last time. And I can only imagine the feeling of his very soul yeeting itself from his body as he peered up at a bunch of figures watching him from the windows. The next part should come as no surprise. Barney then proceeded to bound back across the field like a gazelle, screaming the whole way. He threw his binoculars in the car, threw himself in the car, and began driving like a hysterical bat out of hell, yelling at Betty that they were about to be captured. Though Betty continued sticking her head out the window, reporting that she was seeing nothing, nothing at all, Barney was certain the craft had pulled above them. They continued checking, seeing nothing but darkness around them as he tore down the road. Suddenly, a strange beeping could be heard coming from the rear of the car, as both occupants felt a penetrating vibration through their car and bodies. What is that noise? Barney would ask. I don't know, Betty would answer. Two hours later, they came to full awareness without a clue as to what had just happened or how they had arrived 35 miles south of where they had encountered that strange sky pancake. It would be years before they finally would understand the extent of those two missing hours and realize that they had been abducted by aliens. Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. According to an article published in 2021 by Pew Research Center, about 65% of Americans are favorable to the belief that there is intelligent life existing on other planets. Cool. Out of 10,417 U.S. adults surveyed, 51% said that UFOs reported by people in the military are likely evidence of intelligent life outside Earth, compared with 40% who said they are probably evidence, and 11% who said yes, they are definitely evidence of extraterrestrial life. Here in the West, most of us are probably going to be familiar with the concept of alien abduction as a concept, because most of us have not claimed to have ever been abducted by aliens. 
but a good amount has. Though the abduction phenomenon is commonly reported in the West and in English-speaking countries, despite what some people have thought or been taught, this is a worldwide phenomenon. In an interview with John E. Mack in 1996 with PBS-produced Nova Online, he says he'd been looking at how this phenomenon manifests in indigenous people, adding that tribes like the Cherokee and the Hopi know what we call aliens as the star people. He'd researched the phenomenon in South Africa and in an interview with a leading South African Sangoma referred to these beings as Mandingdas. He investigated an abduction of a farmer in Brazil and had just received a letter as of the time of that interview from a person in Malaysia reporting the same. And I, I will add my thoughts to that. Perhaps we are not as familiar with the larger scope of this, the worldwide scope of this phenomenon, because maybe similar to what we learned in the history episode, abduction experiences in other cultures or other time periods might simply have been going by different terms. We wouldn't think of that as the same thing because they're being labeled as something else. No matter what people are calling it, though, as with so many other cases of encounters across the paranormal world, such as with shadow people and poltergeist activity, black-eyed children, near-death experiences, there is an interesting pattern that forms in the occurrence itself, a storyline. Most alien abduction stories share a lot of details and they spell out a pretty recognizable narrative. And this is significant uh, when we consider it, it is happening across the world by people who don't know each other, people who uh, don't know much about the UFO phenomenon, maybe never had an interest in it before, by people who by all accounts would be considered grounded, mentally stable, average, everyday folk. And it's, it's reported by people with um, quite a bit to lose. So from upper class to lower class, from the very young to the very old, all genders, all skin tones, every corner of the planet. There are no outliers here. It seems anyone can be a candidate for alien abduction, such as an interracial couple from New Hampshire. One was super skeptical, super logical, and the other a bit more friendly to the concept, but really was only familiar with the concept of UFOs due to a family member's sighting and interest. One was a social worker. One was a, a postal worker. Uh, both very normal, average, sane people who were just on a last-minute vacation. <laughs> neither were expecting to be abducted, neither was looking for that to happen, and neither wanted their story out there in the public sphere in the aftermath of when it happened, but unfortunately had to take steps for damage control, you know, just to ensure that their story was told accurately in the way that it actually took place. Before we get too much further... Support for this episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Our friends at Manscaped are now selling beard products. The leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming are once again revolutionizing the men's hygiene game with the new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. Say goodbye to your stubble trouble and tame his mane. Save 20% off and free shipping by going to manscaped.com and using code PNG. 
knowing that I was recording today and knowing that I was planning on talking about the beard oil that is included in the Beard Hedger Pro Kit, uh, Lee came to me last night and he said, you got to tell him, remind him to brush it through. <laughs> and I, was, I said, I already did that. I did that last week. And he said, do it again. It's that important. And then he threw his nose in the air and sashayed away. <laughs> so, so yes, guys, look, give each and every one of your little whiskers uh, some one-on-one -on -one quality time. Okay, my dudes, be like Lee. Brush it through. The beard oil is nutrient-rich and helps to increase your natural shine and restore moisture to the skin underneath. It is infused with sweet almond and jojoba seed oil. It's good stuff. Lee is really enjoying using it. Um, and if you have been wanting to try something like this, but maybe you are sensitive to very strong scents, this might be a good choice for you. Um, the scent is, is very, very subtle. Uh, you can slightly smell the almond and the jojoba, but it's very nice. It's very nice. But don't take my word for it. <laughs> don't do that. Try it for yourself and get 20% off and free shipping when you use code PNG at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using code PNG. Try the oil. Heck, try the whole kit for yourself. It's bomb, dudes. Manscaped Beard Hedger. One stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. The following is from a paper titled Kidnapped by an Alien Tales of UFO Abductions. It was published by the Institute of General Semantics and written by Joyce Bynum in 1993. And though it is 30 years old now, it would seem that the info that is included in it, for the most part, still holds water compared to the modern-day reports. Most stories of abduction contain one or more of the following aspects. Capture, examination, conference, tour, otherworldly journey, theophany, or encounter with a divine being, return, and the aftermath, with capture and examination being the most common to occur. While hundreds of unique and occasional elements might be included in various reports, a similarity can definitely be seen in core descriptions of the craft, the examination room, often equipped with dome ceiling and no sharp corners, lighting that is diffuse and uniform, the examination table included as the only piece of furniture in the room, the air being heavy or misty, and the temperature cold. Then there are the entities encountered. Often described as humanoid, no more than five feet tall, with large, hairless heads, enormous eyes, slit mouth, practically non-existent nose, and tiny or absent ears. Their skin is often gray, their bodies often slender, arms are often described as quite long, and legs described as unusually short. Abductees can often sense a leader, and then there are the others who serve under them. Most of the time, these beings show no emotion, though capable of it, and abductees report communicating with them via telepathy. And specific themes that we see in cases of abduction consistently include the focus on reproduction, with both sexes having reported genital inspection, men reporting sperm samples taken, and women reporting a pretty horrific way to receive a pregnancy test with a needle straight into their abdomen. 
Another theme is that the being's home planet is devastated or dying, and they are searching for new plant species and animal species from Earth. Um, they themselves also might be searching for a new place to call home. Other themes include the giving of prophecies or warnings to the abductees in the vein of moral, ecological catastrophe, or self-destruction via nuclear weapons. And finally, the theme of deceit and indifference, with the beings being seen as polite but coldly indifferent, and abductees often feeling manipulated or coerced during their experience and doubting the beings' motives following that experience. Now, the after effects of these experiences can be both physical and mental. Physically, abductees experience burning eyes and general visual problems, sunburned skin, rashes, and burns that medical authorities have identified as possible radiation burns, puncture wounds, acute thirst, bladder paralysis, or gastrointestinal upset. Witnesses following their experience report a feeling of being dirty and needing to take a bath, Psychological effects may form in the following weeks that include nightmares, anxiety, personality changes, habit changes, paranoia, and panic attacks. And much like Betty and Barney Hill, many abductees experience temporary amnesia following their experience, often only recalling or beginning to recall their kidnapping via dreams or under hypnosis. And finally, a very interesting commonality is the report of further paranormal experiences such as poltergeist activity, the development of ESP, and the appearance of men in black, and of course reports of further abduction by aliens. So I'm sure we, are, we all recognize a lot of the information that comes from that paper. We, we've all read more than enough abduction accounts to recognize the narrative. These are obviously details of alien abduction, right? Well, not so fast. Because the similarity between alien abduction and folklore tales of contact with the supernatural is uh, pretty striking. In these folkloric ultra-terrestrial experiences, on occasion, humans enter the other world between pillars of brilliant light risen from the earth, aka the landed UFO. Through a cavern where the light is dim and uniform, whereas abductees enter through a corridor and find themselves in a rounded room with dim, uniform light. Yeah, pretty similar. The beings um, of folklore who reside in the other world, such as Celtic fairies and German dwarves, have some pretty striking physical similarities to the extraterrestrial being, too. Usually humanoid, shorter than humans large heads and piercing eyes. Some fairies can float through the air and possess other supernatural traits, and this was nodded at with the theme of deception and indifference, but alien encounters have often been reported to have an element of trickster. Trickster E.T. Same can be said of fairies, regularly using deception in their bag of tricks. And I believe uh, the same can be said of uh, leprechaun folklore as well. In both instances, we see examples of the being kidnapping the victim often from their home. They both use disorientation and paralysis to abduct. The abductee in both cases experiences a slower passage of time compared to the passage of time on earth while they are away, like 
what Jason Cordova was saying in our recent conversation together. He was telling the story about the woman who went to the other world to visit the fairies, and she thought she was only gone for a couple of days. Upon her return, years had passed. According to the folklore, visitors returning from the fairies' land may come back with abilities in ESP. They may also come back sporting psychological issues or physical injuries. So, a ton of similarities. Too many to be a coincidence? At this point, I'm wondering if we might not be dealing with anything physical <laughs> in, in the slightest, you know? Like, unlike its UFO uh, counterpart, this does seem a bit more incorporeal and mystical. And uh, John E. Mack, uh, who was a well-known, highly respected psychiatrist, um, he, he, he would agree, I believe. He published over um, 150 scientific articles. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Mack became interested in the alien abduction phenomenon in the 80s and would go on to write two books about the subject uh, based on his interviews with over 800 experiencers. After studying so many cases in his time, Mack was of the opinion that while investigators should remain open to the possibility of these experiences actually occurring, he felt they shouldn't be considered as involving actual physical entities and the experiences themselves should be treated as subjective personal experiences. He was convinced in the reality of the phenomenon but attributed it to interaction with a spiritual plane, concluding that materialist science was inadequate to inquire in those areas. For anyone following along this season, you know, you are already aware that I have been having one heck of a time trying to make sense between the alien phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon, which, as I've said before, and may be completely off base here, uh, seems to be a physical phenomenon taking place in the physical world. Why? Because we have physical proof of the damn things. But if we consider for a moment what Mac might have been saying with his conclusion that E.T. encounters the entities, the experience, um, is not in itself physical, but taking place on a spiritual level, this, this whole time considering that aliens were physical, had to be physical, might have been the crux of my issue. And I'll just leave it at that. Let's let's move on to some um, some abduction accounts before I get s totally sucked into this train of thought. After a long day of chopping wood in northeastern Arizona, Mike Rogers, Alan Dallas, John Goulet, Ken Peterson, Dwayne Smith, Steve Pierce, and Travis Walton bumped and swayed in their seats as they drove along a logging road in an old pickup truck on their way home for the evening. Suddenly, they spotted the light of a forest fire in the distance. Upon closer inspection, they quickly realized it was something else entirely. A very large, disc-shaped UFO sat hovering just above the treetops. They all sat there watching, transfixed by the sight. There were six witnesses to this event. While the accounts of each vary somewhat as to what happened next, there's a very odd sense of consistency which you will see in just a moment. 
It is agreed at this point that Travis, seemingly determined to get a closer look at this thing, leapt from the truck and ran toward the object. His co-workers yelled after him, but he ran right up on this thing. And this is where total skeptics start to get their undies into a real tight twist. His crew boss, Mike Rogers, claimed that a beam of light struck Walton, throwing him several feet in the air. Goulet and Dallas both said, yes, he was struck, but he just fell to the ground. Ken Peterson said he didn't see a beam of light, but yeah, saw Travis lying on the ground. And Steve Pierce actually refused to say whatever it was that he saw. He seemed a bit frightened of whatever that was. Imagine that. Would you believe that these variations uh, have caused controversy and helped to fuel the skeptical speculation ever since? I mean, there, there there were some other causes, but the fact that this is this is one is just like, am I crazy? Like, aren't they all still telling us the same consistent details of there was a giant UFO just chilling, and our, then our friend was on the ground? Like, like how can skeptics just brush over <laughs> the the giant UFO part of the story, and then that something knocked Travis to the ground part of the story? It's like, yeah, 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 I, I would have believed it all, like the UFO, the abduction, yada, yada. But the, but that not every single scared out of his wits man in that truck could tell me the exact lineup of events in, in the exact order that it all took place. Sus, yo, major sus. Like, something is certainly rotten here. It's like, absolutely crazy, you guys. Walton himself would claim that as he approached the object, a beam of light suddenly appeared from the craft and knocked him unconscious. So he, he didn't really clear that up. But uh, anyway, so at this point, the boys would have a proper freakout once their friend was on the ground, you know, as, as one might be prone to do. And uh, they, they, they took off. They sped away. Not, not far away, not far, after a brief interlude of them trying to grapple with what they had just witnessed and not wanting to leave Travis behind, they decided, let's go back and get him. And so they did. But unfortunately, after finding the exact spot, searching, calling out for Travis, Travis was nowhere to be found. Gone girl. Okay. Travis claims that he awoke in a hospital-like room on a table with a rectangular-like object suspended above his body and a curved, dark, gray appliance folded over his chest. He described the environment as humid and uncomfortably warm and says upon awaking, his body was racked with pain and weakness. He became aware of large eyes peering out at him from the dim light and realized he was surrounded, or being observed, by three short, bald creatures dressed in what looked to be brown-orange coveralls. Their skin was pale with a marshmallow-like texture. Not sure what that means. And their faces made him think of fetuses. Small noses, slits for mouths, no visible ears. He freaked and hysterically lashed about, which sent the creatures scurrying out the door. Travis took the abrupt opportunity to flee himself. He ran down a curved corridor and found himself inside of a round room with only one pedestal chair in the center. When he approached the chair, the room darkened and stars appeared all around him. That is pretty kick-ass. Someone that appeared very human, aside from his 
incredible amber gold eyes, wearing tight blue coveralls and a clear helmet, led Walton to another room that appeared to be a hangar. Travis described observing three or four disc-shaped craft parked inside it, ranging from 45 to 60 feet in diameter. He was led into yet another room, where three other human-like beings assisted Travis onto a table and placed a clear mask-like apparatus over his face. And he would remember nothing or be conscious of anything else until he came to, five days later, outside of a town 16 miles away from where he was abducted. He claims when he came to, the craft was departing above him. Travis's condition was reportedly weak, disoriented, and confused. While Travis was having his ordeal, his co-workers were under suspicion of murdering him (laughs) and concocting this wild UFO tale to cover it up. Like, I, I could, I could think of, of some easier, more believable tales. I, that's just me. They were all interrogated by local authorities, subjected to intense questioning, and given polygraph tests that were administered by Arizona's top polygraph examiner, who concluded that the loggers were telling the truth about what they saw and what happened. All but one test came back positive, with that final polygraph showing inconclusive. So, not entirely negative, not not entirely like showing that he's lying, just inconclusive. After the boys had reported their friend missing and what had happened, a massive search operation was launched, extensive combing over of the area and surrounding area on foot and horseback, sniffer dogs on the case. They called in jeeps and helicopters. However, nary a sign or body of Travis could be found. But of course, as we know, he would reappear five days later on November 10th, 1975, with one hell of a story to tell. Once Travis was back, he wanted medical tests and a confidential house call with two physicians was arranged who performed a thorough physical exam and sent his urine sample off for testing. They determined that Travis wasn't suffering from any major physical injuries, but was dehydrated, incredibly distressed, and had lost almost 14 pounds since he went missing. They also found what looked to be a three-day-old puncture wound on the inside of his right elbow. Travis has taken several polygraphs since his experience, all of which he has passed. And that inconclusive test from before was taken by Alan Dallas, who in 1993 retook the polygraph and passed with flying colors. Travis still holds firm to this day that the story he told in 1975 is what happened to him. Okay, one more. A case that has long since been placed in MUFON's Great Significance category and has been extensively documented and investigated and shares some interesting details with the other two cases that we covered today while still remaining unique in some of its own details. It is a standout as far as standout cases go. The Allagash Abductions. On the evening of August 26, 1976, four art students named Charlie Fultz, Chuck Rack, Jim Weiner, and Jack Weiner sat inside of a canoe on the Allagash Waterway, just night fishing for trout and enjoying their time together so far out in the wilderness. They hadn't a clue, and would not have a clue for many years following this night, what was about to happen to them. 
The campfire made bonfire in order to more easily spot their campsite from where they now sat in the middle of Eagle Lake, burned brilliantly from the shoreline. A few gigantic logs, having been tossed under the heat prior to departure, ensured a decent blaze for, at the very least, two to three hours. Now, my actor brain likes to paint a full picture for myself. I imagine these four buddies had just quieted after a a laugh at some stupid joke, maybe another word here and there, somebody asking if anybody was getting anything. You getting anything? Any bites? No? Jim, how about you? Meh, slight tug, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what was said, (laughs) but I like the setup. So I imagine a calm, quiet, hushed over the group, over the canoe, over the smooth, dark surface of the lake. When the creepy feeling that they were being watched first came over Chuck Rack. I turned toward the direction from where I felt this and saw a large, bright sphere of colored light hovering motionless and soundless about 200 to 300 feet above the southeastern rim of the cove. Chuck yelled at the others to take a look. They watched as a huge, oval, glowing object rose above the trees. It was intensely bright with energy flowing through it and made up of four oscillating quadrants of bright colored light. Charlie Fultz grabbed a flashlight and blinked it toward the object. As soon as he did, it seemed to respond. A beam of light shot out from it, hitting the water below. The object began moving toward the canoe, and the boys, suddenly terrified, began paddling frantically back toward their campsite. Unfortunately, paddling a canoe with four hysterical people, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what they are seeing, makes for a very slow trip, and the beam that was sweeping across the water quickly engulfed them. The next thing they knew, they were just reaching the shore and watching as the object moved away and shot into the night sky in a step-like motion, traveling and then disappearing and reappearing much further away until it was completely gone. What seemed like only minutes had passed since they first spotted the object left the boys dumbfounded when they stood around what remained of their blazing bonfire, staring down at nothing but deep, glowing red embers. Several years following their incident, one of the twins, Jim, had been receiving treatment following a head injury. However, during his treatment, Jim had begun having very strange nightmares that included himself and the other four from the camping trip, all nude, in a strange place, surrounded by humanoid creatures. He was also having terrifying nighttime visions of strange-looking beings surrounding him in bed, feelings of levitation, and feeling that something was being done to him specifically his genitals. When his doctor inquired as to why he seemed so overtired, Jim refused to tell him what was happening at first until the doctor insisted that whatever it was was affecting his treatment. So he spilled it. Luckily, Jim's physician was already familiar with the UFO phenomenon and recommended that he go talk to a UFO researcher. Though Jim was reluctant to do so, he would attend a lecture by Ray Fowler at a symposium in his area in 1988. He would end up telling Ray about the experiences he had been having and what he and his companions had experienced that night in 1976. 
This must have set off some alarm bells for Ray because in January of the following year, he would initiate a formal investigation with MUFON UFO entity specialist and physicist David Webb and MUFON hypnosis consultant Anthony Constantino. Bringing all four witnesses into it, they were asked to complete MUFON UFO sighting forms, and they were extensively interrogated, given character checks to ensure all of their credibility, and all stories were cross-checked for consistency. Medical records, camping diaries, and photographs were collected and examined. Friends and relatives who had heard about their experience before were interviewed. The head forest ranger at the time of the incident was even located and interviewed. Psychological profile tests were administered, and each, of course, was subjected to polygraph tests. All of this documentation, testing, questioning, cross-referencing came back, indicating that the four experiencers were being honest and telling the truth about what happened that night on the Allagash Waterway. Under hypnosis, the cross-checked stories and experiences of all four contain the following information. They reported that they had all been transferred from the canoe into the UFO via the beam of light. Once on board, they encountered strange humanoid creatures. There seemed to be an element of mind control so that they were unable to resist what was being asked of them. They were made to take their clothes off and sit on a plastic-like bench in a misty area, illuminated by diffuse white light. Their eyes were examined, and their mouths were examined, both with a pencil-sized rod with a light on its tip. They were placed into harnesses and had their arms and legs flexed and extended. They were laid on tables where each was examined by strange handheld but also large machine-like instruments lowered over their bodies and numerous samples were taken from each, including saliva, skin scrapings, blood, feces, urine, and sperm. They were then made to dress and taken to another room, which had a round opening on one of its walls. They were lined up and made to walk into the opening. They reported strange sensations overcoming and flowing through their bodies and found themselves floating back down the beam of light into their canoe and placed in the exact seating positions they had been in when originally taken. Interestingly, during these hypnosis sessions, it was discovered that the twins had undergone bedtime visitations by alien creatures and had had many abduction experiences since early childhood. And, of course, additional abduction experiences since the Allagash event. Following one of their adult abduction experiences, one of the twins, Jack, noticed a biopsy-like scoop mark above his ankle, which was located just above a scar left behind during an operation for an anomalous lump that had appeared overnight on Jack's leg. His doctor thought it was a cyst, but unable to drain it, referred him to a surgeon who removed it. Local pathologists did not know what it was and sent it to the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. When Jack's medical records were checked later, he discovered that the sample had then been sent to military pathologists in D.C. to be analyzed. Attempts for further information about the sample were thwarted as the surgeon would not cooperate with the inquiry. Now, learning these stories at this deeper level has really got me questioning some things. It's hard to know what to believe with a subject like this. But as far as believability goes, I wanted to mention, uh, and maybe you noticed, 
all of the examples that I gave today were all shared experiences. Multiple people reporting damn near identical, if not exactly the same stories. And the polygraphs and, and the experiencers passing the polygraphs, those, those were so compelling to me. The polygraphs in the Walton case, in the Allagash case. Betty and Barney Hill, they faced their own <laughs> series of polygraphs, and they passed. And they were both showing significant physiological reactions that indicated to the investigators that they were telling the truth. And I know that the polygraph is not the gold standard anymore. I know that. Police um, conducting interrogations and investigations, they, they don't use them anymore because it was found that some people are just fantastic liars and can deceive the polygraph machine. But there's still something to be said for seven people total in the Walton case being able to pass the damn thing, telling the same story. One person being able to deceive it, that's one thing. Absolutely, of course. But, like, both Betty and Barney, all four of the guys at Allagash, all seven in the Walton case, all of these people were just that good. Mm, I don't think so. No. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the machines were broken on all of these dates and in need of a tune-up. Who the heck knows? But yeah, it's got me questioning. Now, before we hit our final segment for the episode, I did have some honorable mentions I wanted to get in here. They will be very, very brief, I promise you. But I wanted to, to give a nod to some of the weirder, far-out-there cases that I came across. Because you know what? They're, they are a part of this world, too. So here they are. Honorable mentions. World-class chess player and multimillionaire Kursan Ilumzhanov claimed in 97 he was abducted by aliens dressed in yellow spacesuits from his Moscow apartment. By the end of their encounter, they left him with the impression that chess had been introduced to humans by aliens. Simon Parks, who was a Labor Party counselor for the English town of Whitby, claimed he was the child of a nine-foot-tall, green-skinned alien woman. There you go. There's your green skin. I found one. Someone he referred to as his real, more important mother. He says when he was 11, she picked him up and took him for a ride on her spaceship. And he also has an alien daughter named Zarka. One more. <laughs> Herman Blount, who was a musician of over 200 albums and would become known as Sun Ra, claimed to have been taken to Saturn by aliens who helped him learn his ultimate purpose, to become a spirit guide to mankind. He was told that, though Earth was going downhill pretty quickly, he was going to help stop it. He would later claim that he was not actually a man, but an angel from Saturn. There you go. Now, if you enjoyed today's subject. You know, it, it excites you. It intrigues you. You just love a good alien abduction account. Maybe you actually think it would be cool to be abducted yourself. I am so sorry to tell you that the final segment on today's show is not going to be something that you want to hear because I am going to tell you exactly how not to be abducted. Knowledge is power, my friends. Your first line of defense 
So here it is, your shield. In 1988, Anne Druffel, a UFO researcher for 40 years at that point, wrote a book called How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. Using a database of over 250 case studies, she ascertained nine techniques from cases deemed resistors that can be used to ward off alien entities or stop an abduction in progress in its tracks. The techniques are as follows. Mental struggle. You're going to block their mind control. If you are already in a state of paralysis, as so many abduction accounts report, you must retain sustained willpower. Just like you would in any case of sleep paralysis that you want to break, focus on moving a finger or a toe to break it. The witness must feel a sense of outrage at being attacked in such a manner and maintain strong conviction. Many resistors who have used this technique often reported that it seemed there was a sense of surprise on the part of the alien or being. This technique requires that you be patient. It is a strong, internal, silent struggle that is proven to be effective. Physical struggle. Fight back. This is a good technique to employ if you realize what is happening before paralysis sets in, though it can, of course, be used if you have broken the paralysis. It is a strong, natural instinct to resist an attacker physically. You must be self-confident that you can fend off your attacker and retain a strong sense of violation as to what they are doing. She mentions that anger can be a valuable substitute if you do not feel confident in the moment. Also, getting a hand on the nearest weapon as soon as possible can be crucial to your physical defense. Righteous anger. You have inviolate rights, damn it. Get angry about them being violated. Druffel says that in order for this one to be most effective, righteous anger should be focused on reclaiming your rights and to be left alone instead of directing hatred directly toward the attacker. She recommends using strong commands, either verbally or mentally, such as go away or leave me alone. Protective rage, guard your loved ones. This technique is used to assert protection for family members, especially those who are small and virtually defenseless against attack. It is best used before paralysis in conjunction with a thought message to the alien that, though you wish them no harm, you reject their attack and will defend your home and family by any means necessary. Support from family members. This one might go hand in hand with protective rage, but from another angle, but this one is all about strength in numbers. People who are willing to help you must accept that you are in fact being attacked and do everything they can to put an end to your assaults. Druffel emphasizes that this will not work if those who wish to provide their assistance believe that it is a matter of curing you of what they believe to be delusional thinking rather than an actual assault taking place. Intuition. If you tuned in last season, you know all about this one. You know how powerful it is. Listen to your gut when you sense danger coming and be physically and mentally ready to defend yourself against it. This is important for two reasons. The first being you will in fact be ready should an abduction start to take place. And two, it has been reported that aliens often won't even come if they sense that their kidnappee is already prepared to defend themselves. Metaphysical methods create a personal energetic shield. Visualization is key with this one. 
Imagine a bright white light flowing down through the top of your head all the way through you and extending a few inches out away from your body. Supposedly, the white light acts as a psychic shield and is a very effective alien deterrent. I had no idea. Appeal to spiritual personages. Now, Heidi Hollis, who is well known for her work with shadow people and the hat man, she actually recommends this technique specifically to ward off those types of entities uh, should you encounter them. She says it works. I wonder, um, you know, if it affects them the same way in this circumstance. This technique is simple. Pray. Depending on your belief set, you can pray to guardian angels, Jesus, Mary, saints, your departed loved ones, or any other ethereal being that you look to for guidance and protection. And the final technique, repellence. Think along the lines of any substance or object that you would use in the case of demonic possession. You can use crucifixes, holy water, holy metals, crosses, herbs, oils, salt, and magnets. And I think if you have another object with some significant protective importance to you, I personally would think that you could use that. I I don't know. I guess I I need to read her book in full at length to make sure before I give you bad advice. But that's what I would do. You know, push comes to shove. And look, If any of these techniques fail you, if you are being picked up every Friday night, you can't stop it, you don't want it, you don't like it, you just need some way to take back control, there is one final last resort for you. And it it may not make it right, but it is something. Join me in the final note to hear all about that. Before we get to our final note, let's tune in for our monthly check-in with paranormal investigator, Jason Fife. A client, and they reached out to me about investigating. And this is someone that I, that I know that I've known for a while, but I never considered or thought that they you know, had questions. You know, they've done it for a while and stuff, and they reached out to me and, and basically was they really felt like something possibly attached to them or followed them home from an investigation. So we were talking with some, we started on in square one, you know, and I was like, did you close yourself? You know, when you got ready to leave the the property, did you, you know, go outside, shut the door, you know, say nothing can follow me home, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and I was like, so, and then when you got home, you know, did, and I, I know this may sound weird to some people, but I've seen crazier stuff. But as soon as you get home, take off all the clothes, stuff you had on, put them in a bag, tie it up, leave it outside, go change, shower, whatever you need to do, and then take those clothes and put them straight in the washing machine. You know, because that way, if if the, if the paranormal can attach to you or spirits can attach to you, they can attach to your clothes, you know, your electronic devices, I mean, anything out there. So when we discussed that for a while and uh, they were like, no, they're still in my hamper, you know, and I'm like, hmm, okay, well, let's just take them into the laundry room, wash them and then let me know what happens, you know, after that. And they were like, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're just out of your mind. And I'm like, it's possible, you know, but they went and did their laundry, washed their clothes. And this is like a week later. So they've dealt with stuff for a week. Then when it was done, 
wash your clothes and everything, and they, they sage the house, they're fine. They're good. And and like as I was like, make sure you sage your equipment, you know, make sure you sage everything that you took with you to that location. And luckily it just was able to happen this time. They were able to get what was there moved. You know, I've heard different um, ideas and opinions on the sage aspect of cleansing. And like, I've, I've heard them go so far as to say, no, 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 you have to use certain types of sage, only use, or only use cedar, or blah, 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 sage doesn't do anything. Like, what, do you have a recommendation if somebody is like, you know what, I, I want to try this, I, you know, what does it hurt? What, what do I use? I've, it, that, that, that is a big battle, big debate, big battle, because everybody's particular, you know, this sage is for this, and this sage is for this, but truly, I mean, just plain white sage will work. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter, in my opinion, what it is, as long as, you know, you're doing it with best intentions. Yeah. Okay. Well, what you just said, that whole process of like, you know, be sure to close the door and be sure to wash your clothes and blah, you know, all of that, that is, uh, that's quite a big process. I, I had no idea that you needed to do all of these things. I, I was in my mind, you know, I've only been on two <laughs> ghost investigations before, but I was just like, yeah, just, you know, say a little prayer at the beginning and you're fine. You're, you're good. Yeah. But not necessarily. Yeah. Cause especially it depends on like what you're going to. Um, where you're at, even if you're just going to hang out, you know, at a supposedly haunted place. Well, if you get home and in the next couple of days, things start happening that are weird or that are not normal, or you're having super, 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 and I'm not saying this is true, but super bad luck and this and that, you know, and you're normally pretty, you know, everybody's got their own things, but it's like, okay, what's changed? What's happened? You know, and nine times out of ten, they're going to look back and be, well, I was over at the haunted place with the friends of mine and da 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 you know, and they don't think about it. So it, it may, it possibly, my theory is it lasts. It lasts on there to whatever, you know, you, you have, you've done. Okay. I don't think a lot of people think of that, that part. Right. What else could, for anybody who's uh, maybe, maybe nervous that they brought something home, something attached, you know, some kind of weird energy, what else could they be looking for in that might be happening around their house that are like, oh, you know, maybe I should clue into this and just notice if this keeps happening or if more things happen? What can people look for? It's just kind of like the, the odds and ends, you know, I mean, for a prime example, for me, a lot of times, Cause I know pretty much everything that goes on here, but I like to mix it up sometimes. So, you know, I'll come in and there might be something moved or there might be a little something out of place or, you know, the candle on the coffee table, you know, is, is maybe half a corner over than what it was before. You know, it's the small things. And then I'll, I'll ask Tamana, I'm like, did you, when you lit the candle, did you put it there? She'll be like, no. And I'm like, you know, I look at the, the dogs and the cat and I'm like, was it you guys? And they're looking at me like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you kind of have to, you know, you have to be really aware of your surroundings. But you're you're also in the comfort of your own home too, so you don't want all kinds of freaky stuff to start happening. And that's that's your private place, your comfortable place, and and that. So. Well, thank you so much for teaching us that. I had no idea. I'm sure some of my listeners had no idea. Um, that is really intriguing and interesting. Uh, did you did you have anything else you wanted to share for the check-in today? 
Uh, just uh, with that, and I, I would like to uh, mention if, if anybody is out in the Miami area, Miami, Florida, uh, there's a good team out there called 305 Paranormal. They're on YouTube and Instagram. Say that but, one more time. You broke up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a 305 Paranormal. They're really good people. They have a lot of good videos and instructional. And they're fairly new to the, the paranormal experiences and going out and stuff like that and we've talked quite a bit about the paranormal and and they're very you know they're a younger team but they're doing everything they should do as far as you know taking the baby steps and learning everything and this and that trying to figure stuff out but yeah give them a follow if you're out there or if you're in miami they're like hey come hang out with us and we'll go to haunted places you know so so they're really good people but uh couple more things and I'll make it quick. Um, I did send you a picture um, of the uh, Coliseum Theater uh, and that's in uh, Corinth, Mississippi. That is Southern Ascensions and then also Twisted Ascensions. They're the same people. Mm-hmm. They're they actually, it's a working Coliseum Theater. So it's a hundred years old and they're still having performances and stuff there too. So um, if you're interested in going, they've, they've got it all set up, contact information and all that. But it's $200 for eight hours of investigation. So that's really cheap, you know, I mean, for an eight hour. And that's for uh, six people. And if you have over six, it's like like $30 per person. That's relatively cheap. I'm I'm just throwing that out there because it's a functional theater. And they, they ask that you have three different desired dates in mind when you call them or get a hold of them. Because since it is a operate operating theater, they have to get with the director to make sure everything's good, so that they can have the theater on those days. So, okay. Okay. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard some stories about this place from not them but some other people that have went, and they're like, you get a well-rounded investigation when you're there because it's closed off to them, you know, to the public. But the next night or the night before, they may have had a show or two. So you still get the live energy and all that stuff as well, as well as the the past spiritual. Uh, But you can contact Caden Mask on Facebook Messenger, or uh, I can give you the number. It is area code 662-284-6502. And you can contact him for booking and stuff like that. Just any kind of information. Okay. And do you happen to, like, do they take multiple groups at a time or once they book you, you have it? Yeah, you have it. Like you can do um, a private investigation, which is the $200. uh, And that's for eight hours. So once you book it, then it's yours for, for the eight hours. Um, And they're always there to help or, investigate with you if you want them to you know i mean it's so they're always there for for the support but as far as that goes i was when he was telling me about it and i was like you're out of your mind i was like 200 bucks for eight hours you know and it's a it's work it's a working coliseum you know and i hate to say this and some people may get upset with me but if you go to brushy mountain state prison which is an hour from here it's 15 to 1800 dollars wow for an overnight okay. And it's a not working prison, if that makes sense. Like it's not a functional part of the community. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no new energy coming in. No there. new energy and stuff like that. And that's what I was looking at too. And he was like, Well, hey, he said, We want to get out here and teach people. 
and show them how to how to do things and not be afraid of the spirit world you know what a great venue uh, a great location to choose to do something like that to offer that even though it is still running live so they are they are making their money for their shows but just to wow. do this and kind of help paranormal investigators out on the side i you know the the price difference that gap I, i'm sure you see that everywhere uh people want to get into these places and they just it's unaffordable um so i love that there's an option like this uh and and for eight hours up to six people that's, that's not bad that is not bad at all that was a thing that i was figuring out was i was going okay so you know we have this then we have this but the thing about it is if you go to anywhere else like even right now to try to get into waverly hills you're looking at 2024 2025 right and that's not even a guarantee and you know then i'm trying to find places like this that are untapped paranormal wise mm -hmm. and you know you get the opportunity to go you know to to do it so and it's affordable yeah yeah and i and my my only other thought on that was um you know i come from an acting background i personally can tell you there is an energy in any theater you walk into it is just palpable make the hair stand up straight on your head um yeah there's just something about those types of locations where you're absolutely right when something when even sh you know shows are going on or like the audience is coming in and feeling those feels constantly and and at such extreme and extreme extent um yeah the stuff sticks and it's there and people love those places when you're an actor when you're a, a regular uh, play goer you love those places so i would imagine if you wanted to hang out somewhere cool after you passed away <laughs> That might that, be a good spot. <laughs> that might be a good spot, yeah, because it would it would call you would constantly have uh, activity, or you 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 would be the activity, I guess, <laughs> if you were you know in, in the spirit world. So yeah. But the the last thing I have, and I'll, I'll make this kind of short, is I have a giveaway package this week. I'm a huge fan of anything Scooby Doo and anything Ghostbusters. Okay, like the, that's my two biggest, you know, my two biggest things. So. The first one is I have a Ghostbuster uh, Marshmallow Man, Stay Puff. Uh, I have this, and this is pretty cool because when I ordered this, I didn't realize it was in a big demand at the time, uh, but there are no more. So, because I was like, hey, I'm going to go back on there and order, you know, one for me, for my collection. Then I went and I'm like, oh, no, no, sold out. I said, so whoever emails me or messages me, you know, is going to get a pretty cool prize um and the second thing is i haven't even opened it up yet and i'll keep it sealed until i ship it it's a book but it's also a ghostbusters book of the little golden book series so it's classic print and it's ghostbusters so send me a message on my email or any of my sites and you know, hit me up if you're interested in this or if you want it. And like I said, it's, it's free. I'm sending this out to a listener, you know, so it's not a gimmick or anything like that. Like you message, message me and you let me know then it will be sent out to you. So that giveaway, is it is it two separate giveaways or, or they both come together? I can do either or. So I can send out one and then I can send out to another one, which I think that would be that would be the best thing. Okay. So we'll have one for the ghost for the Mar uh, Stay Puft Marshmallow one, and then one for the uh, Ghostbuster book. So that way, 
well, two opportunities instead of just someone getting both of them. That's that sounds awesome. So we actually have two giveaways this this check in, um, and uh, yeah, for any Ghostbuster fans out there, this is this is a really cool uh, gift, really cool thing to add to your collection. And you've got until March thirteenth to reach out to Jason Fife uh, at, at his email or any of his sites. Jason, just real quick, did you want to give us that information? Yes, uh, you can reach me at my email, which is uh, Jason Five Seven Five at Gmail. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook, which is Jason Five. You can reach me on the Lost Souls Paranormal, the detectives on Facebook, the Knoxville Paranormal Society, and on my Instagram at Jason dot uh, Jason dot five dot seven five. Any of those platforms, you can reach me on. And what I'll do is just—it doesn't matter which one it is. Just, just send me a message, say you saw me on the show, and uh, we'll go from there. And if you're the first person to hit me up, then you'll you'll get your choice. All right. Very cool. You got the information there. I will put all of that in the show notes uh, for you to easily find if you're interested in these giveaways. Reach out. You got some cool stuff heading your way. All right, Jason, thank you so, so much for joining me once again. This was awesome. As always, I look forward to next time. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Jason Fife for joining me once again, and thank you for the education, my friend. Always a pleasure. As you heard there at the end, Jason is offering two giveaways right now. Those include the Ghostbusters Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man figurine, keepsake, collectible, it's very cool, and a still-sealed Ghostbusters book of that classic Little Golden Book series. I think I owned all of them at one point when I was a kid. So anyway, Ghostbuster fans, this is your cue. Send Jason a message via Facebook, Instagram, to his email. I will put all of that contact info in the show notes for you to easily access the deadline for those giveaways is March 13th. And now it is time for your final note. Sometimes you just can't help a thing from happening. Life happens, death happens, accidents happen. And luckily, if we are planning ahead, there's insurance for that. There is also insurance should you be abducted by aliens. Yes, this is considered a joke amongst insurance salesmen, and it's made very, very clear by the company who sells it that this is a novelty policy and better suited as a gag gift. But according to the founder, who seems to have a pretty good sense of humor, it's not entirely an empty promise as one claim has actually been paid out since its creation in 1987. It is offered by the St. Lawrence Agency in Florida and protects you in the event that you are kidnapped by aliens. This policy offers $10 million in coverage in the event of abduction and is good for life. The policy covers outpatient psychiatric care, sarcasm coverage, which is unfortunately limited to immediate family members only, and double indemnity coverage in the event that the aliens insist on conjugal visits, the encounter results in any offspring, or the aliens refer to the abductee as a nutritional food source or the other white meat. So, how do you file a claim? You must provide proof of the abduction via a signature from your abductor on the properly completed form. 
So hopefully you would remember to grab that during the utterly terrifying, traumatizing hijacking of your body up into the craft. But if you can provide that and receive a payout, you will receive 10 million at the rate of $1 per year for 10 million years. I really hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Please rate and review if you are digging it, homies. And join me next week for a really cool chat with the hosts of Middle-Aged and Creeped Out, Todd, Sean, and Nate. Yes, I got all three because I am just that persuasive, baby. Or they are just that nice. That's that's probably it. That's probably what happened. But I am really looking forward to sharing that chat with you guys. That is a wrap for today. I really want to see you all back here next week. So stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.